day and welcome to episode 144 of Effect, a gaggle of GMs. I'm Dave. And I'm the Doctor. That's what we're going to be now. We're going to be Dave and the Doctor. <laughs> Dave and the Doctor. It sounds like a, a rubbish 1970s cop show, doesn't it? Dave and the, Dave and the Doctor. Yeah, no, we, I'm Matthew and we have, as usual, as we always say, we have got a practice packed episode for you today we'd never say we've got a practiced episode i don't know what that is but we'll, we'll edit that bit out or something well, it, it's actually it's a very special kind of episode that packs even more yes. into into the word packed it packs another fifth another fifth we are going to be thanking our patrons we've got three more new patrons to thank well we've got two new ones and one we didn't thank last time so whoops sorry um, sorry bruce <laughs> oops we have also got uh, uh plenty to talk about in the world of gaming uh mostly about us i think uh and things that we are doing <laughs> in the world of gaming i don't we mean do, we do like we do like to talk about us, don't we? Yes, the world of gaming is Dave and the Doctor. It's nobody else anymore. It's we are just us. the world of gaming. Uh, <laughs> and then we've got a special treat. Uh, if you are one of our patrons, you will know that in a week or two, or actually just over a week now, we are holding our little patron-exclusive um, convention. Convention. Connect, as it's called. And uh, one of our new patrons uh, that we'll be thanking shortly uh, so I can't mention his name until we've thanked him. Yes, I can. Bruce, um, on our exclusive Discord, Bruce had said, um, you know, what do you need to do to, to manage and run uh, uh, games at conventions? And we thought that was a useful topic to talk about. But rather than just hearing your voice, Dave, because I know you'd go on about it for ages, and mine, uh, we've got a couple of our G the first two, in fact, of the GMs to sign up to run games at Connect are going to be joining us in about half an hour to um, to share their wisdom as well. Indeed, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. so Thomas, Thomas from all the way down in Aussie, and Niklas from Sweden. And, and it'll be you and me sat here in Blighty. So, yeah. yeah, it's, so it's, be a, it's global, mate. It's, it's, it's going to be a global podcast. conversation. Absolutely. Uh, and then we are going to talk about, uh, as I, I am going to respond to that challenge you set me in the last episode. And I'm going to give you begrudgingly the battleship Potemkin. And you can hear about <laughs> the heartache that went into that ship. Uh, at the end, and I think that's probably going to be the all, all for for this time. Uh, I think so, unless unless we need more content, in which case I can talk a little bit about. To um, we don't need West more content. Playtests. You're going on holiday, Dave. <laughs> Let's <laughs> okay, leave our visitors fine. wanting more. We can promise Toto in the next episode. How about that's, that? That's that is absolutely fine. Yes. <laughs> right now, um, let, let's crack on with our patrons. And you know what? I said three. I've got a sneaking suspicion I've got a fourth, but I'll have to dig him out. I've got to say... You, you, don't, you don't even know all of our patrons. <laughs> I mean, come on. What are you well, doing? Uh, I, I have to say, Patreon, Patreon, the website, has been a little bit weird in sending notifications of new patrons and listing them in various different ways whatsoever. So... Um, so I'm, that's my excuse, and I'm sticking to it. So, but it does mean that in our last episode, we apparently forgot 
to thank the patron who shall remain nameless. Oh, no, no, we've already mentioned his name. That's okay. To thank Bruce for becoming a patron. And so now is the time, Dave, to say thank you to Bruce. <laughs> yes. To Bruce Lang. For becoming a patron. Yeah, thank you, Bruce. Um, brilliant. And Bruce is really active on our patron, and he uh, he joins uh, our weekly um, Friday afternoon, Friday evening cafe where we just come and chat. So it's brilliant. He's really got stuck in. And, um, yeah, it's great to have him on board. Yeah, and let's guy, face so. it, he's brilliant. given us the content for this program by asking a very pertinent question. So, yeah. Yeah, Indeed. top input, Bruce. Uh, we've also got Michael, who I think maybe we should have thanked last night, but he or last time, but he didn't appear at all on <laughs> Patreon uh, until quite recently, but he joined us on September the 24th. So thank you very much, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Great to have you aboard. Uh, and our most recent patron is uh, A.W. Bader, who only joined on the 3rd of this month, but has already, just like Bruce, been really active on the uh, Patreon Discord and in fact, um, did a final bit of proofreading on something that I want to talk about in a little bit later. So he's already become a fabulous community member. So again, I, I yeah, brilliant. thank do we have you. To say, yeah, thank you, Mister Bader, or thank you, AW. I don't know. I I'm not sure what his first name is, but yeah, AW. That sounds yeah, quite. Let's cool, call him AW. Thank you, AW. Thank you, thank you, <laughs> and. Um, you start talking about the world of gaming. I'm just going to dive into Patreon because I think there's a returning patron who, according to um, to the Patreon website, doesn't deserve a shout-out, but I think we decided last time that returning patrons did. So I'm just going to dig that one out. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> of course returning patrons should should, uh, should get a, get a shout-out. Um, yeah, so in the world of gaming... Um, I think the first thing I'll mention is something that's just come up. It, it started yesterday on Kickstarter, which is the latest edition, the latest art book from Seaman Stalenhag uh, from Free League, which is called Labyrinth. And it's another um, wonderful opportunity to get a, um, a a collection of artwork from from Seaman, who is an absolutely stunning artist. He's, he did all the art for... Um, Tales from the Loop, and in fact, Tales from the Loop, the game, and Tales from the Loop, the TV series, was all inspired by his artwork in the first place. So if, you, uh, if you're if you aware of that, you'll know the kind of quality we're talking about. And this time it's reflecting a, a, another sort of dystopian universe, sort of post-apocalyptic. The world is covered in, in ash, and there are great big, well, for me anyway, unexplained things that are, are um, sort of prowling the landscape. So that kicked that that started its Kickstarter campaign yesterday, which is the eighth of October. So we're recording on Friday the ninth. Um, if you like that kind of thing from Simon Stolenhag, go and have a look and back it. It's already um, it's already been backed. It's past its target already. I think in about four hours, I backed it, and I actually backed it on the limited offer level just because I thought, why not? Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it should be absolutely great. So go and have a the, look for that. There aren't many very different levels here. The limited offer is a lovely cover, is it? Yeah, it's a, it's a lovely cover. It's a, it's, um, <clears throat> it's a sort of, um, I'm not sure if it's a sort of, kind of fabric bound, but it's a, it's, a, it's a beautifully browned book, which is only ever going to be printed the once. It's, um, that is the more expensive level. Uh, it's... Um, but it's not going to be printed again. So if you wanted the uh, the, the limited 
version, then um, now is your chance because they won't do a reprint of that one. Um, and I've, I've found, just to, to stop talking about um, uh, World of Gaming for a moment, I have found our returning patron, and that is Thomas Powell. Good. Uh, so uh, thank you, Thomas. Welcome back, Thomas. Uh, thank it's you. It's always yes. great to have somebody who, for whatever reason, you know, he had to stop his patronage before. That doesn't matter. He's come back. So that just shows double the love. So thank you very much. Uh, Thomas. <laughs> yeah. um, now, moving on to the rest of the world of gaming, uh, Stalinhag's new book is out. I haven't backed it yet. Uh, I haven't. I haven't got any of his other ones. Um, I haven't got any of his artwork. No. no. So this but, is the um, first artwork I would... book that you've backed. Yes, mm. uh, I think again, principally because um, when I, I I came to te- I came to his artwork through thing um, Tales from the Loop. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than the other way around. Uh, and there's so much of his artwork in Tales from the Loop, I didn't feel I needed another art book yeah. <laughs> of the same kind of stuff. Um, but this is different. So this is a different area. I do wonder whether Free League have got a similar kind of trajectory in mind, whether they think if this artwork and this world takes off, that there's a game in it. Possibly. So with the Things from Who the knows? Flood art book, um uh, art book uh, Kickstarter when they first put that out, the the role playing game was a stretch goal to that, and I think actually with Tales from the Loop as well when they first crowdfunded Tales from the Loop, the art book, then the role playing game was a stretch goal to that. So we may see it? Okay. it appearing as a stretch goal, and in which case you as a backer yeah. would be getting a PDF at some point in the future when that game is made, and of course they'll then do another yeah. Kickstarter for the paper uh, Deadwood version of the um, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, of said game, if it comes yeah, out. I, yeah, I, I didn't look down at any listed stretch goals or, um, that are already I there. Don't so, think, I don't yeah, think an okay. RPG That'd is listed as yet. There are only a very few stretch goals, and they said we're going to keep yeah. it to an absolute minimum because we know what we want and we're not going to compromise on that by turning it into a stretch goal. Yeah. Um, but we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see for that. Yeah, um, cool. Now, the next bit, I guess, since I've already mentioned it, is Connect, which is our mini uh, con uh, just for patrons and their invited guests, we always say. Um, this is a follow-up mm-hmm. to the uh, convention we did somewhat spontaneously in April, just when this lockdown was starting. And that was a kind of thank you to all our patrons who indeed um enable us to subscribe to Zoom, which we were using for interviews, but, you know, we've since started using it to stream stuff. And, um, yeah, and it's been a real boon to us during lockdown. So uh, so thank you again to yeah, all our patrons for that. And it's six months since that happened. So, well, I think it was our patrons who started getting a bit antsy and said, when are we going to have another convention? So we're having another one now. Yeah. And this is called Connect. Um, what have we got happening in Connect so far? Well, this is next mm-hmm. weekend. Um, where so when you uh, when you hear this, um, it'll even be, closer, what, five or six days away. <clears throat> um, and we've got quite a lot lined up so far. So we we've got um, I think we've got one session planned for the Friday evening, um, and then we've got three sessions planned for both Saturday and Sunday. So that's sixteenth, seventeenth, eighteenth of October, if uh, if my calculations are correct. And so far, we've got. Um, uh, our our um uh, our patron Andy is going to run a first edition Twilight Two Thousand yes. game. Yes, guest uh, 
um, which will be interesting. Um, I'm going to do a uh, quick run of Tales of the Old West. Excellent. And we've got a Things from the Flood game um, scheduled as so well. So I'm noticing Tales of the Old um, West has, is, is on the on the schedule, so well done. I knew it was worthwhile making you a staff member of the con- uh, the convention on... Uh, what, well done for working out well how done to do for it. Well done for working out Warhorn is a Warhorn is a is a is pain in the ass. Have 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 the people who designed Warhorn ever actually played a fucking game in their life or ever tried to schedule well, a game know, in I their think life? Because it's a total it's a total In its mess. defense, if you were it's, running oh. an organized play campaign, uh, you know, like Adventurous League or Pathfinder Society, I think Warhorn is built for you. So you can plonk all your Adventures League Maybe. stuff straight into whatever convention you're doing there. But for those of us at this end, running a small convention, and admittedly, we're not paying for Warhorn, so we're, we're using their free service. It may be better if you're a subscriber, uh, but by God, it's a pig to use. And I noticed, for example, at Tales of the Old West, <laughs> you've done very well. You put the details in there. Uh, you've explained it's in the Mutant Year Zero system. Yeah, we'll work with them on that one. Um, you've yeah, I know. Well, there wasn't a there wasn't a year zero no, no, option. No. It was like, it was either mutant year zero or something else, which is even less yes. appropriate. Well, uh, there's a number of our games that are down as homebrew system because the, the the game doesn't exist. And yes, we could email them and ask them to add the game to the list, but I think um, we might do that after after the event. But you haven't put yourself down as a GM to that game, so who's running that? No. I've- I've got no well I am but I've got no idea how to do that on Warhorn and I couldn't be bothered working it out because everyone knows I'm the GM so it's right, fine. Okay. I did work I did work out how to put myself down um as a player. So maybe it's a similar kind of thing so I should yeah. try it. So I, I successfully put myself down as a player for things from the flood for Thomas's yes. game. Um, and that's and that's filling up already. So that's three. He he said he could accommodate six players. Yeah. He's already got half of those. Three, three players are signed up to that one. So that's great. Uh, and then yeah. So I'm just going to say the other the other games we've already got scheduled. Um, we've got a fiasco game on on Sunday. And for those of you who don't know what fiasco is, it's a uh, it's more of a sort of collaborative um, storytelling game. But it's uh, well, I've never actually played it, but. My um, my brother and the, the group here have played it a few times when I haven't been able to make it, and uh, they keep telling, they keep retelling tales from them. So uh, they they clearly were great fun games they had uh, uh, with those. And then um, vampires and rabbits. Now what you're yeah. doing that, aren't you? So, so explain. I had said uh, I will either run a game of vampire version five because I really ought to get my head around that. Or I will run uh, the Warren, and everybody said no. We want to have uh, vampire rabbits uh, and stuff. Well, except except me. So I I, I wanted to play the Warren. But yeah, never mind. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll we'll get round to the Warren at some point. But um, I thought, well, how <laughs> can I mash vampires and rabbits together in any way that makes sense whatsoever? And then I realised you don't need to if you're playing Feng Shui. So that's what we're doing. <laughs> it's going to be uh, an invented scenario out of my head that involves vampires and rabbits, and it'll be in Feng Shui. And the reason, actually, here's some world of gaming news about Feng Shui. Um, so okay. Feng Shui, we loved the first edition of Feng Shui when that came out. We played quite a lot of that and really enjoyed it. Uh, second edition hasn't got so much love either from us um, or I feel from... Atlas, who haven't really produced anything for it. 
Atlas have worked out how they can do that, and they have currently got an appeal, which we'll put a link to in the show notes, to say they're looking for subscribers to Feng Shui. And if you agree effectively to buy an adventure every three months or so, then they will start producing those adventures. And they've got the first year planned out. They need uh, 350 Mm -hmm. subscribers. And I think that we have about 350 regular listeners. So if everybody who listens to this show (laughs) subscribes uh, to Feng Shui, then, uh, then I get what I've always wanted more, which is, which is more Feng Shui stuff. Uh, and we get to play it some more. So that's one of the other reasons why I suddenly thought, let's do Feng Shui at Connect. Uh, Okay. Well, I I really loved the campaigns that you ran of that before. The only thing I hate about it is your pretension in calling it Feng Shui (laughs) rather than Feng Shui. So (laughs) it always grates. And you might be right. That might be the accurate way of pronouncing it, but everyone calls it Feng Shui, so it's Feng Shui. Feng Shui Shui is how it's pronounced in Cantonese. So... so. Uh. Yeah, yeah, I don't care. I don't Feng Shui care. too. Yes. Feng Shui is the game that we are playing. Second edition of that game, and uh, we will have a whale of fun. Uh, that's assuming I've got any yeah, players. I, I have, so I, far, nobody signed up for that. So despite them saying, I want to yeah, have um, rabbits and vampires, um, well, we'll wait and see. So, yeah, the other things then I think that we really want to talk about is um, – uh, another convention that's coming up. So uh, Essence Spiel is coming up. It's obviously online again this year, as all the other conventions are. It's the weekend of the 22nd to the 24th of yeah, October. Yeah, Thursday, so it's not this Friday, Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> I, I think we're doing um, stuff on Thursday, Friday and Saturday. I don't think we've got any stuff going on on Sunday. Um, no. So we've, we are again, as we did for Gen Con and UK Games Expo and for the Showcase, I'm running uh, another brand new alien game that I'm in the process of writing. God, you're churning those Alenia... alien scenarios out. It, it was quite well, actually. It's called Alenia Bay, and I spent most of yesterday um, being grumpy with writer's block, trying to think, what the hell am I going to do for this next cinematic? And I eventually came up with the idea, and I think it's going to be mm-hmm. a good one. Um, but yeah, I'm my well of creativity for Alien is uh, is deep. Uh, you know. It, it, well, it is, it is deep, but it's also drying up a bit. It feels. Right, well, I've got an idea for um, you, which we will discuss after my my piece on Battleship Katemkin. So, um, okay. Well, I've got an idea for excellent. this one anyway, but there will be another one around the corner, I'm sure. So there'll be dragon yeah, or something yeah. that we need to do something for. So I'm doing that for Free League again, which is brilliant. That's on the Friday night, 8 o'clock uh, BST. You are lined up to do Versen and some. Yeah, aren't Versen you? and Versen. So uh, I've got... Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not going to run um, uh, uh, summer in uh, December for the stream. Uh, I'm going to run instead. I'm going to adapt. I think it'll need shrinking down a little bit. One of the published scenarios, uh, The Silver of the Sea, which is about herring fishermen. And herring is my favorite thing, <laughs> as Dave knows every time we visit anywhere where herring is available for breakfast. Um <laughs> uh so uh i'm gonna i'm, I'm gonna um adapt that into a convention format and we're gonna run that as a stream but then cool. a bit later on just uh yesterday day before yesterday i was contacted by free league and oh dear i'm gonna really mangle the german now 
uh, German uh, YouTube channel that I am going to forgive me, everybody who speaks German. This is going to sound awful. Um, Go on. Uh, Can't be worse than our pronunciations of Merck Boyer, can it? Orkenspalter TV. Orkenspalter is the best I'm going to do with that pronunciation. Orkenspalter TV is a German YouTube channel focused on games, as one might imagine. They are kind of, a, I think, official partners of SN in terms of um, YouTubing it, a bit like uh, Tabletop on Tabletop R at UK Games Expo. And so they're going to be uh, running some stuff there. And they've asked us to run a game for them. And I'm going to run Summer in December for them because they want a two-hour game. And cool. Summer in December, Excellent. as was originally commissioned, Dave, is a two-hour game, <laughs> just like your great, long, multi-generational epic, Home uh. Sweet Home. Yeah, I'm just not very good at writing two-hour <laughs> games. Um, although I've written quite a lot of them. Although I say I say that one, it was it was um, it was a challenge for uh, UK Games Expo. Was it the no? It was the um, showcase, yeah. wasn't it? Where I ran home home sweet home. Getting that into three hours was yeah. a, a a GM mental challenge and a well, half. I'm- but it did it. It, land, it landed bang on. I've never landed a game bang on before. And so I must admit, was, uh, when was... I ran uh, Summer in December for UK Games, that's where we overran by 20 minutes. So um, so there we there go. go. Uh, this one so... I will definitely keep to two hours. And Summer in... Uh-huh. No, that's cool. That sounds, that sounds like a great Summer in gig. December, though, I just want uh-huh. to point out, is now available for you to purchase. Uh, if you are a listener, you can go to Drive Through. It's currently number one in the community content program, uh, uh, the Free League Workshop on Drive Through RPG. So head to Drive Through RPG and get your own copy of Summer in cool. September. Then you too can see whether you can play it in two hours. Summer, it's summer. It takes four. You, you might want to. You might want to remember the name of your scenario whilst you're. Well, what did it, I mate. just say? So summer in this. You call it summer in so, September. No, 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 it's not summer in September summer at all. in December. So I'm going to put one up there called summer in September and see if it outsells <laughs> yours because they're going. <laughs> summer in December. Sorry. December. December. Okay. Right. There yes. we go. Uh, cool. What else have we got to talk about? Um, um, now, you've been doing some work on Twilight 2000. Yeah, just, I mean, I was just going to just, just reflect um, – uh, on a tiny bit of work that um, that I've done for the for this current um, Twilight Two Thousand, the obviously the um, the Free League guys and the designers are doing a new version of the history um, for the, for this game. It's uh, yeah, I think it does depart a little bit from from the, the version of the second second edition, and it it it, it seems to be I think. Um, based reasonably well in some sort of predictive thinking about what could have happened for real, because I think the previous versions were a little bit... Um, Made up. Unlikely, perhaps, shall we say, yeah. So um, as part of that, um, so I've, 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 uh, it hadn't included... Well, it had a throwaway line in it, and I was reading it, um, that, yes, the, and the war hasn't touched the UK. And I was like, and I, so, I, so I mailed Thomas and said, that doesn't really seem right. You know, this whole situation is involving NATO and is like there's a hot war on the continent and all the rest of it. So I, I gave a whole little list of suggestions for improving that. But then he also asked me to write the um, the, the, the teaser for the UK's 
um, this position. was a stretch goal. I remember so, it appearing as a stretch goal, wasn't it? To a sort of a little, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, kind of a guide to playing it in your local neck of the woods with some German sites, UK and things like that. Yeah. So, so, so I did that. I was on a really strict word limit. So I, 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 I found it really hard to get, keep the words down. Yeah. Um, and then I got, um, uh, a mail from Thomas, uh, Copied to Chris Lights, who's been working on the, the, body of the, text, uh, the background yeah. for, for Poland. Yeah, absolutely. Which is great um, to have an opportunity for, for him just to say that an idea of mine was a good one, mm-hmm. which was fine. And um, he had a throwaway line in, in his Polish one, which referred to the UK. And I'd already put something in, but I took it out for word count reasons. So I got to, uh, so they came and said, let's synchronize this with the UK. So I added another few words on that. Brilliant. I've just done that this week. Um, so it's a, it's a short piece. It's only about 800 words. It may well have to be fewer than that because my original limit was 550. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's great. It's brilliant to be involved in it. And um, yeah, so I just thought I'd shout out mm. about that. <laughs> so it was great, great fun. Excellent. And the thing that I think we don't have time for, but maybe we'll talk about it in the next show, is sins. Uh, but I feel now we should try and contact with the two GMs waiting for us in our hammam. should. So, hi, welcome to uh, a, a, a slightly different take on the players in the hammam for us today. Today we've got GMs in the hammam, and we're going to be talking about running convention games. Um, we've got two wonderful guys in the hammam with us today. We've got uh, Niklas um, from Uppsala. Sweden. Uppsala. Sweden, you. Yeah. And Thomas from... Oh, I don't know where you are in Australia, Thomas, but you're in... Canberra. Canberra, Canberra. the nation's cool. capital. The nation's capital. So um, welcome, gentlemen. It's brilliant. Thank you for joining us. This is a genuinely global um, episode of, of GMs in the Hammam, um, and it's wonderful to have you on board. Um, did you want to just sort of introduce yourselves briefly, a little bit about your, um, your sort of uh, gaming experience and your convention gaming experience? Niklas, shall we start with you? Right. Uh, so uh, a long time ago, uh, in the early 80s, I played uh, AD and D with my friends, and uh, and that then petered out. Uh, and sort of 40 years later, <laughs> I got back <laughs> into this uh, again, having a, done a lot of improv. Yeah. Ah, um, right. So, so, so uh, the the last during the last decade, I've I've been doing. Uh, a lot of improv in my spare time uh, and but then this this gaming urge came mm-hmm. upon me again and i i realized that uh role-playing games had changed in these times mm-hmm. and the overlap between improv and and role-playing games was much larger than and it had been so i would say yeah. yeah so what was the first game that brought you back into the fold do you think nicholas uh, actually, it was one of the uh, free league games, Svavelwinter, the Brimstone Winter, because uh, I uh, am, well, I used to be more or less a neighbor with the guy that wrote the books. Eric Granström. Uh, Eric Granström, and, yeah, yeah, and, his, uh, and those books, I think, are fantastic. 
the best thing, the best fantasy written in Swedish. And it's a pity they are almost untranslatable yeah. in any other language. I would say. Well, they're being translated into to Danish. Anyway, uh, following his blog and I realized, oh, there's these people playing uh, this game in a podcast. And, and I started listening to that and then I sort of was sucked into this uh, rabbit hole again, uh, finding out all these games. So, well, that's the short story, I would say. Suitably short, given that Dave has to go on holiday. Can we turn over to you, Thomas? Tell us a little bit about your gaming history. Yeah, and don't feel pressured to be really, really brief, just because Matthew's (laughs) going on about me going on holiday. So (laughs) I I am respectful of everyone's desire for leave. uh, I played my first game of D&D in 1982, uh, about a kilometre and a half from where I'm currently sitting mm-hmm. um, uh, at a mate's place um, when I was in year seven, when I was 12, I think. Um, I obviously, like many people of my generation, played an inordinate amount of role-playing in the 90s. Uh, the biggest game I played actually through the 80s and 90s was actually Champions, which was the superhero mm. game system, the hero yeah. game system. Uh, I learned a lot about Excel spreadsheet design and delivery by playing um, <laughs> Champions, uh, which, is, which has served me well in my actual career ever since. I'm quite the uh, Excel expert as a result of my role-playing uh, background. Uh, I mentioned the 1982 thing because it's actually got a cute... Uh, bookend. Uh, the most recent game I ran at a convention, uh, which was at the start of the year in Canberra's, you know, uh, biggest convention, of which we have two, uh, I GM'd my friend who I played mm. with in 1982. Um, yeah. And I have not played with since. Oh, so wow. It had, it had been 38 years uh, since we last played a game and we played uh Basic D&D, Keep on the Borderlands in 1982, and we played a Pathfinder game for Pathfinder 2E uh, at the start of the year. So Colin and I play have played exactly two games together in 40-odd <laughs> years. Uh, so that's quite cute. Uh, I've done a lot of convention GMing. Um, my first real role-playing experience was in 1986 when uh, I helped convention GM for the first time. So I've been doing it a bit. Cool. Uh, and my favorite free league game, because this is a free league channel, um, is, uh, things from the flood. And we should say that you've got not one, but two scenarios, um, on the free league workshop, haven't you, Thomas? I do. They're not necessarily, uh, groundbreaking material, but, uh, Look, it's a bit of fun uh, to write them and put them out there and see what people think. It's only before you joined us, I've been going on about summer in December, which I've just put on the Free League Workshop. Ah, so I thought, well, we've got to spread good. the love around. Oh, thank you. That's it great to hear. Good. It is very good. Yeah, it it, it improved yes, a lot when it, when, it, when it got edited by me. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I I can tell you, it's gone through a couple of proofreads since then, and they spotted a bunch of mistakes that you didn't spot. Dave. <laughs> hey, I wasn't uh, sorry, sorry. I was <laughs> ah, now we should uh, we should get back on topic. Um, mm. So you, uh, Thomas, you've done quite a lot of uh, convention DMing or GMing, uh, and you, Nicholas, you haven't done much. I have. None at all, actually. Okay, right. So, <laughs> Nicholas here is here to learn 
Um, yeah. <laughs> well, we're here to learn too. It's not just Nicholas. Well, yeah, we're, we're all here to learn. Although I'm, I'm thinking, Dave, was your very first convention GMing, was that running Judge Dredd in was. Games Day in 1985? In about 1985 or six, yeah. Yeah. So I did a, um, a Judge Dredd scenario set on a sand harvester with robots and people were being murdered. So it was a bit of a, a murder mystery Judge Dredd scenario. And yeah, that was, yeah, 1985, 86 at Games Day in London. Um, that was my first ever ever convention GMing experience, which went really well. I was, I think I was quite worried about it back in the day. And I think maybe this is the first lesson for those people who've not done it before is um, kind of don't worry. You know, you <laughs> might feel like you're under the spotlight, but actually everyone coming to the game is coming to have fun and they come into the game because they're interested in it. So um, yeah, don't worry about putting on a poor performance or a show or about people thinking it was rubbish because they almost certainly won't because it will be, be a good event. As long as you prepare properly, I feel. Yeah, I mean, prepare, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As, you would for, as you would for pretty much any game that you run. So what sort of preparation should somebody be doing for a con? Let's start off with that question. Um, Thomas, let's turn to you first of all. What do you do to prepare for your con games? Uh, look, it's not rocket science. I read the module three times. Mm-hmm. Um, I make sure I go through the module three times. I read it three times and I mark up the stories. So I think the really key thing, what I would say is the key thing is don't sweat the rules. No one cares. Yeah. Um, you know, rules are there for fun and giggles right now. There will always be players to challenge that statement, but it's about understanding the story and how it ends because you've got limited time and you want to get them to the end. So they feel like they've completed something. Yeah. Now, I'm interested you say you mark up the story. Uh, I think this is a great failing of mine because I don't know whether it's my age, uh, but I, I, I am now constantly thinking when, when, when a player suggests something, I think I've read something about that. I know that's in here, but where is it? And, and then I go, right, that, that's a really important thing. I need to think that out. And that's a, that's a failing I'm noticing more and more now. So how do you mark up the story there, Thomas? Do you, do you use little post-it notes in, in the book itself? Do you yeah, copy I do. stuff out? No, I do. I put it in, like I mark it up. I literally mark it up. I have post-it notes or those little, um, you know, the little arrow post-it notes? Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think. Yeah, those things. Um, but look, reading it three times helps a lot too. And once again, uh, I don't sweat it. Right. Like at the end of the day, I've got enough of the story in my head to be confident. Yeah. And if it yeah. isn't exactly as it's written, no one's going to know. No, and no, no one should care. And no, really, no, 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 I, I think Matthew, Matthew would learn a good lesson from that, which would be to read the text at least once before he runs it, <laughs> let alone sometimes. <laughs> I do read it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but we, uh, um, uh, oh, I had a thought there. It's gone out my head entirely. Dave, you carry on. <laughs> um, yeah, okay, well, I guess I guess that advice from from Thomas there is good advice for anyone running any game, really. But um, Nicholas, how about you? On your say, you're you're running your first experience this uh, on this occasion. Yeah. How, how have you gone about preparing? Well, the nice thing is is uh, the game I'm going to run. Uh, it's no prep at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's a fiasco. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. 
So, so, uh, and, and I'm not going to GM it in the, that there is no GM in this game. So I'm, mm -hmm. I'm going to, so I'm going to prepare sort of explaining the rules because, uh, that I noticed people have sometimes hard, uh, hard time understanding, what how does this work really? Uh, so that's what I would have to prepare. Uh, but have you, have you decided already the, um, the setting and the genre? Because I think that's fiasco is one way yeah. as a group decide what you want to play. Because um, I know that the, the, my, the yeah. guys here, I, I've never played it, but they did a Star Wars yeah. version and they did a, hmm. I think a medieval version or something. Yeah, I was, uh, uh, well, one other patron, Phil's uh, uh, better half, uh, wanted to smash things. So we, 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 <laughs> <laughs> we settled for the Dragon Slayer's playset. So it's uh, ah. this uh, low fantasy, whatever you make it. Yeah. I guess the, um, the clues in the title, I guess, for that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, now, did, remind me about Fiasco, because like Dave, I've never actually played it. I've seen it being played. And I seem to remember a great big pile of dice in the middle of a table and people taking dice uh, out of this pool and adding them to their own pool. And we're going to be playing this online. Uh, how does it work in the online way? Well, so uh, the dice one, that's the classic version of Fiasco. Uh, oh, last right. year, a year ago, they, they had a Kickstarter out for a card version. Ah. That is that is now out. And uh, they in that Kickstarter, they, they uh, got all the stuff you need, uh, the assets for Roll20. So uh, everything, well, you got the cards, the decks and, and everything uh, in Roll20. So that's... Uh, okay, so we're going to be playing this, or the, everybody who joins you on Sunday yeah. or Saturday are going to be playing it in Roll20. You've yeah. got all your card deck already in place there. Uh, and that yeah. brings an interesting uh, discussion, actually, about the differences between playing in a con face-to-face -face and playing at a con mm. online, which, of course, everybody's doing this year. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thomas, uh, when you, you said at the beginning of the year you'd played with your friend after 38 years. Was that face-to-face -face or was that after Yeah, lockdown? it was. No, it was pre-lockdown. So I did Gen Con. I did mm. a couple of sessions on Gen Con, which were online. Look, yeah. it's certainly tougher. Like, and anyone who says otherwise is lying, right? So <laughs> um, it's tougher. I'm not saying it's impossible. I mean, I run two campaigns online right now and I have been for the last year and a half just because travel is hard um, and I'm frequently out of the country. So it's harder to run the games face-to-face um, -face in that scenario. Um, mm. But, yeah, so once again, but actually it just solidifies the need for prep. Mm -hmm. Online actually means you need more prep, not less. Okay, so what are the, what's the extra prep that you're doing for an online game? Um, you've got to be really like you. So what I do is um, I usually document what the actually funny story. Um, having said I don't write out the dot points, um, I do write out the dot points when I'm doing online. Um, mm -hmm. So I usually have them as part of the notes for the GM in say Roll Twenty. So I use Roll Twenty. Um, uh, so that I can follow the narrative structure and so I'm keeping it in my head um, because it's much harder um, to make eye contact, right? So mm. it's just literally harder to sort of get a sense of whether the players feel the game is slowing down or whether it's yeah. speeding up or, you know, all of that. 
you know, it's exactly the same as any online meeting. It's got all the same challenges. Um, and uh, the other biggie is video. Video is actually really important um, mm-hmm. if you can get it up because you at least can get some read of people's faces. Um, a lack of video makes it even harder. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking, this is going to be an audio podcast, but, you know, I much prefer having video while we're doing it so that we can see everybody's mm. body language, pick up on those subtle signals. People don't even know they're making. And I really do struggle with online games that are audio only. In fact, I won't do it really. Um, I know a lot of people do, but I, I, I need the extra language. Also, I'm a yeah. bit deaf and my audiologist says I do quite a lot of lip reading. So mm. I think video is vitally oh. important. Mm. Yeah, in, in the Toto yeah. games that I'm running, the playtest, my, my eldest son doesn't use a, a camera. I'm not quite sure why. I have to buy him one. Um, but it doesn't seem to bother him. But for me as a GM, I do, I do worry sometimes that when I haven't heard him say anything for like 15 minutes, mm. you think, is he having a really shit time or is he, is he just gone? Has he got <laughs> off to make a cup of tea? And that's the reason he doesn't use a camera because, yes, he goes off to make a cup of tea. <laughs> he doesn't want to tell you, Dave, how boring your games are. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I tamper the experience. Sorry. But for me as a GM, sorry, sorry, Nicholas, but for me as a GM, it just adds a little bit of worry about how well the game's running. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that entirely. So, Nicholas, we interrupted you. Yeah, uh, I found that if, if I play with a group of people that I've have played with before and I know uh, just doing it over uh, audio works quite well. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, I mean, for a convention thing where you, where you maybe don't know them at all, you, you really need that video. Right. And that brings us... That's an interesting point. Sorry, Matt. I just to say that I think, you know, we, we'd be running all these conventions. Now, if, if it had been... A, a physical convention, you would have had a random bunch of people sign up to your game and you would almost certainly mm. not know any of them before or you might, mm. if you were lucky, remember them from the previous year or something. The, the way I'm finding with the conventions is you know, we are presenting demonstrations rather than sort of community mm. games. So I always choose, you know, choose the players in advance so I know all the players, at least, at least in, in mm. the which again is another departure from mm. you know running these games at a convention. It will be four or five strangers probably, so it's mm-hmm. slightly different. It's less of an interactive experience for the individuals coming to the convention, rather than those of us who are kind of running or organising the convention. That brings me on to another point because the last game I played, most of the players, uh, this is Vason that we ran at UK Games Expo, or for the for the showcase, sorry, for the uh, freely showcase, which is a bit like a convention. I knew most of the players because they're patrons. They've played, you know, or at least chatted, if not played before. Um, but one of the players, I'd, I'd particularly wanted to get a bit of extra diversity in there. So Doug from Victory Condition Gaming loaned me one of his players, and um, and I realised after the game, I I was distraught because I hadn't done what I would normally do at a convention, and that is some form of safety briefing you know talk a little bit about mm-hmm. what are the things or or even ideally beforehand what i like to do is um you know give people a questionnaire so that they don't need to talk about anything that might trigger um yeah. an unfortunate mm-hmm. reaction in front of everybody else and i didn't do that with these guys and this particular scenario is one in fact i've been asked mm-hmm. by the germans i'm running it for not to include the child murder bit of it <laughs> Which is fine because it's designed to excise that bit out. But we went straight into the child murder bit of this one. And I thought, 
oh, bloody hell, I did that without even checking with this new yeah. player whether that was going to be okay. Mm. Um, so, so what do you do? I mean, uh, this has become more of a thing, I think, than when we were playing in the 80s. Uh, what do you do about sort of safety tools at a convention? Um, uh, let's start with you, Dave. Um, so I think the, uh, the, I mean, so I had a very long gap between doing Judge Dredd back in the 80s and then running conventions. So I, I came back to running games at conventions at um, Dragon Meet a few years ago and I ran a Coriolis game. And mm. then since then I've run Coriolis and I've run Alien. Now these games are um, inherently horror in one way <laughs> or another. Um, that's a key element of of the whole genre so i think i probably haven't been thorough enough actually in making sure that the, the players around the table are content with what's going on because you kind of assume if you're going to come and play a alien game you know you've got mm. an idea what's going to happen therefore you have sort of accepted that content already um but i think that actually for a physical con, Matt, you're absolutely right. You should do a, uh, a very short questionnaire in advance and then have them hand them in. If there's an issue, you can just flag that. Also, I mean, I think the, the, the idea of the X card, on the one hand, is, is great because it means if something is happening in a game and a player is unhappy with it, they can stop it. But I do wonder, actually, how often in that situation somebody would play it. Yeah. Um, so I think maybe another mm. way of so dealing with that issue in advance, if possible is a better way of doing it because you don't have that awkward moment in the game or in the game, the person might not feel able to. Yes. I think that. So you want to avoid that, mm-hmm. that problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I definitely, I think, I think that's definitely a good mm-hmm. thing for online alien stuff. What I just try and do is, is put in a, a disclaimer at the start. As I said earlier, the players I've got are players I know. So I know that they're content with the content, but for those watching, you know, to say, yeah, there is a, there is potentially adult themes here. If you're not sure you want, you know, it's not for a younger audience for sure. Um, fiasco, does that have, that, that has inherent safety tools, doesn't it? I think. Well, yeah. It, uh, the, the now second card version uh, has uh, this uh, let's not card. Mm. And okay, cool. that sort of, but still, I, I, I think you posted that uh, PDF, Consent in Gaming, or mm-hmm. the link to it, and, and I started reading it. And uh, what you have uh, already said, to do it, uh, not having to explain to everyone else that you don't like something. And so mm. sit by yourself and fill this in, and you, uh, as a GM, you then have a know where the, the boundaries are. Uh, is maybe a lot better than having to state it in front of everyone else and yeah maybe being challenged why you don't want to bring uh, yeah or even, spider, or even just, spiders up or whatever or even just a, but not even a fit even not a, like a an overt challenge just people on the other side of the table yeah. sort of quietly tutting yeah. and rolling their eyes which is yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Less, yeah. Less powerful or even more yeah. powerful potentially mm. Mm. so uh, thomas do you use safety tools at all in your games Honestly, I haven't until now. Um, I'm not even. <laughs> I'm really putting you on the spot here. But I don't think that's no, no, I think a lot of people don't. No, yeah. It's actually no, no. really no. Well, look, it's probably as much as anything a child of the types of modules that I've run in cons. So, look, most of what I've done is Pathfinder for the last 
10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, Pathfinder very rarely touches on anything that is going to be particularly, you know, confronting. Uh, we go, we kill the goblins. We go, we kill the orcs. We go, sorry to all the Pathfinder players out there. Um, <laughs> well, you know, and, and to all uh, the goblins and the orcs. It's a pretty and whole, to, whole particularly to the day, goblins and the orcs. Um, particularly now that they're both playable races, it's much more offensive. Um, however, um, I mean, I, I, it's, it's a fascinating blind spot because uh, in my work life, um, it's actually something I'm hyper-conscious of. Um, I work in the social welfare space um, on a daily basis. I'm quite, you know, I'm a lead in a very large program of work and I'm hyper-conscious of those things in those scenarios because we're treating with exactly the same sorts of things. We're treating with foster care, with domestic violence. We're treating with all of those things. And so we're very sensitive of it in the workshops that we run in my workplace. So actually I read, I saw the, all the conversation about it last night, which is why I asked for the PDF and I was actually in all seriousness, quite struck by my absence of thinking about it because mm-hmm. it's something I think about all the time in my workspace. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was quite embarrassing to be true. <laughs> uh, well, so, well, we'll cut uh, this bit out of the recording. Don't worry. <laughs> no, no, I, I, but, but like actually in all seriousness, it's interesting because we separate. We never do. We separate how we see our work lives and our gaming lives. Mm. And it's interesting to me that I had that blind spot. So anyway, so I intend to use the uh, consent model in advance. I think that's exactly the right model. Um, And I think things like, and particularly things like things from the flood is a game where a lot of that type of material can spring up quite readily. And of course, very famously, guys who'd been playing in our alien adventure last year at UK Games Expo, then went on to play a things from the flood game that was so offensive it made the news here and internationally (laughs) (laughs) that's gold now i'm gonna go and look it up Um, one one of them's become one of our patrons so you can have a chat with phil about it but uh, Mm. uh but yeah it was uh astounding about how wrong it could go and this was an experienced gm who'd done lots of volunteering conventions and yep. in all honestly, I thought he thought that this was going to be a great laugh and it he didn't expect it to go as spectacularly wrong as it did. Um, but yeah, more on that later. But that I think is, for me, one of the things that made me think, eh, maybe this consent stuff is a good idea. Yeah, that's right. Um, Although I do wonder if he'd done a consent form for the content he was going to go with for that game, he might not have got any players anyway. No, yeah, in which case, maybe, maybe that would have been a lesson for him. But then it might have been a lesson for him to tone it down a bit and do it in a different way. I think one of the challenges there is, of course, we can do consent forms online before the event. Doing it at a table requires a little bit of work, requires a bit of planning in terms of, you know, have you got time to to put the forms out, get them back in, change the scenario if there is a change there. Mm. All that needs a little bit of work face-to-face, but at the moment we're talking online. Let's move on, though. I, I know we're talking a lot about this, and it's good, but um, let's, uh, let's move on to actually running the game. I think something you said, Thomas, is very important, which is don't worry about the story. And I do think the story can go in any direction with the you know. Uh, you shouldn't be beholden to the storyline in a published module because actually the 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 five or six of you around the table that are, are you, you're there in a in a bit of improvisation and um, uh, creative storytelling together. So it doesn't really matter whether the story you tell turns out to be entirely different from the one in the published book. But how do you deal with 
I mean, particularly with your Pathfinder experience, Thomas, with somebody going way off track and turning left when the whole adventure says, and they're going to turn right. Uh, mm-hmm. All right. So there's two responses, uh, and I've done both, actually. Uh, one is good enough. <laughs> Let's do that instead. Um, because, look, at the end of the day, people turn up to cons, and actually this is where I think, you know, to, to what was just being said, Dave, about... Um, by you about, you know, um, we've sort of got these set up games and we're doing almost presentational presentation mm. style or exhibition style gaming. I think this is where con experience is quite different. Um, or I suspect it is maybe that's better language. Mm. Um, when we, when you come up to a con, you've got players, they've paid their money usually. Um, and they're there to have a good time. And your job as the convention GM is to have a good time, right? Like what you want is everyone gets up from the table at the end of the three hour stretch or four hour stretch and goes, that was fantastic fun. Nothing else actually matters. No. You know, like it doesn't matter Mm. whether we ticked all the module bits or whether we didn't or, you know, whatever else happened. What matters is they step up from the table at the end of the three to four hours and go, that was fantastic fun. And they're all going, yeah, that was really cool, right? Like that's the goal. Interestingly, I suspect with exhibition games, that is not quite so true Um, because in an exhibition game, you are sort of showcasing a module, showcasing a game system. Now, don't get me wrong. I think, you know, fun is still the intent, but obviously it's within the constraints of excising and showing, you know, what you're exhibiting. Um, (laughs) So I think that is a difference. So my first response to the question is, I'd just roll with it because I'm confident enough in the system to not be stressed and, you know, make it up as we go. Um, my second, my second thing, and look, um, Pathfinder modules are mechanical um, to a large extent is it's, it is actually quite difficult to go off the path because that suggests mm-hmm. there's, you know, something off the path other than empty space with, you know, a cliff <laughs> attached on each side. Um, uh, so you pull them back and you just say, look, okay, I get where you're going and you direct them back in. Now, if they keep on pushing against that, then, and if it's one player, so this is probably a more important question. Mm-hmm. What do you do if it's one player that keeps on dragging the table away, right? Because that's actually an off the side conversation moment as opposed to uh, you're just GMing a group. Right, yeah. Right, because it's quite a different scenario where one player is insisting on playing their game and everyone else wants to play this game. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a much tougher question and I think that's an off-the-side conversation because you owe it to the table to be, mm. you know, con- conscious of everyone's desire to have fun, and which is exactly yeah. the same as the consent discussion we just had. At the end of the day, it's about people enjoying their experience and having a safe and enjoyable experience. Mm. So you have to bring that person back into the thing. And look, I've never had to do it, so hopefully I never will, but I would be willing to, you know, say, look, maybe this isn't the right game for you. Mm. There's, I had an experience at um, Games Expo last year when we were running the Alien demos where we had a player a bit like that who, well, not so much in dragging the story off, but was um, kind of just opening up lots of totally tangential sort of conversations and discussions, which I could see the other players weren't enjoying. Um, yeah. And in the end with that one, um, I just kind of like chairing a meeting. I just brought us back to the, to the main group and yeah. brought us back to the main group. And eventually he kind of got it. Um, the other thing I found with the, the, the challenge I found with 
um, convention games is you've got a, you've got a hard time limit, and you want mm. your players to get up from the table having had a satisfying conclusion to that three hours, whatever that satisfying conclusion might be. For Alien, it was you know ideally get to the end of that story and you get the climax. Or everybody so, dies, of course. That's dies. a satisfying conclusion <laughs> in Alien. That's very true. Um, and I, we did have a couple like that. We had one where it was clear we were never going to get to the conclusion. And so they, they ended up getting themselves trapped in the medical bay and I had the door locked and an alien outside and then roll credits. And it was a really satisfying end and they all really enjoyed it. Um, the other one was at the very beginning of all of those episodes or those games, I said, we're on a really hard time limit, guys, so please bear with me if I'm pushing you forward and trying to keep the pace up. Mm. So, whereas normally you'd let the players, you know, stew a little bit, let them breathe, let the game go at its own pace. In a convention, sometimes you can't let that happen because you'll never get through the game. And time limit is a really important one because I think I have a very different style when I'm running a game at a convention to when I'm running a game at home. Uh, I mean, you will know, Dave, that I am entirely prepared when we're at home or when we've got our own time. I particularly love it when we go away on our gaming retreat and we know we can just play until one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. I, I sit back and I enjoy watching the players interact, even if they're like you guys always do, uh, tie yourselves up in knots of planning about whether you're going to do this, that or the other and, and turn around in circles about whether you're going to kill this guy or not. You, your morals, mate. It's, it's great for me to just watch that. I, I enjoy, that's part of the thrill I get out of GMing. But it takes, you know, you could be talking about that for an hour and in a convention game, that's not going to solve anything it's not going to get you to the end of the story so i find myself in a convention game doing a lot more steamrolling and saying mm. okay you've made this decision uh, even if really they haven't just forcing the decision on them because we've got to keep it going keep it going so what sort of time time management techniques do you use well let's start with nicholas shall we okay okay <laughs> well uh what shall i answer no, so well, I, I, I don't have any experience. I, yeah, well, I don't have <laughs> any experience of this. So, uh, but I guess it's like if you run a meeting at work and you had to get through the points. I mean, it's yeah, it's the same sort of thing, isn't it? You, you just just have to have the uh, well, I don't know, if courage is the right word. Just decide. You have to step in and, and say, move along, or and and well. How does that work particularly in Fiasco? Because I imagine Fiasco is kind of, uh, you, you're not the game master there, you're more of a facilitator helping us all do it. Yeah. Is it, is it time-bound in any sort of way? Does a Fiasco game take X minutes or whatever? No, because uh, you play out an, a, a fixed number of scenes. Right. Uh, yeah. and, and, a, and a scene, well... If if you don't uh, keep it in rain, you could go on and babbling for fifteen minutes, and then then everything goes pear shaped. But <laughs> uh, but but if you stress at the beginning, let's keep the the uh, the, the scenes to a, a couple of minutes at the most, then things will tick along. Cool. And actually, so how many scenes do you expect to play in a fiasco game? Four per participant ah right i see so it so, does change it can be longer if you've got five participants it'll be a longer game than if you've got three yeah 
Mm, and usually the recommendation is not to have more than five participants. Yeah. And presumably the participants run their own scene, as it were. So you could get someone who likes to hog the limelight and spends 10 minutes on their scene and somebody who doesn't and spends 45 seconds. Yeah, but uh, sort of in, in the setup, now we're getting into a bit of rules here, but uh, if, if you set your scene, uh, the others uh, will decide the outcome of the scene. So at some okay. point in time, they will say whether this, this goes, uh, is a positive outcome or a negative outcome for that particular character. And uh, is that depending on how entertaining you've been in running your scene or talking about your scene? It's, or? It's about uh, what fits the story and what right. do the other things uh, work? How, how did the scene go? Uh, is it going in a good direction? Or or if it's going in the good direction for that character, the others might want to, ah, now let's see you move this into a negative. Uh, <laughs> okay. it's, it's about influencing the, how the story goes, more or less. But. I'm going to say I'm playing Feng Shui uh, Feng next Shui. week. <laughs> Feng Shui. <laughs> Uh, we were just discussing I, this on the podcast before you joined, guys, that uh, the only thing I hate about Matthew's um, feng, feng Shui games is the fact that he calls it Feng Shui. <laughs> Which is the right way to pronounce it. But, uh, but the right way to run Feng Shui, feng shui is to have three fights in a scenario and have some connective tissue between those three fights. So I feel Feng Shui is really easy to time manage. You know, if a, if the first hour's yeah. gone by and you haven't finished the fight, then, you know, bring some gigantic ape on to smash everything and mm -hmm. move us on to the next one. <laughs> so I, I'm feeling quite relaxed about running Feng Shui mm -hmm. because it is three fights. That any Every scenario is effectively three fights. But um, other games can be a little bit more fluid than that. Mm -hmm. um, Thomas, have you... Uh, how do you manage time? Uh, so first of all, I think certain games work much better than other games. So I think there are games that are far better suited for convention play than those that are not because they come with the mechanics that allow you to control time. Mm -hmm. So, and I'll, I'll talk about things from the flood for a second, because I think it has, a, it actually gives you the opportunity for a perfect mechanic, um, because it separates things into scenes. Mm. Right. So it, 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 it actually creates this concept of you can time slice an activity and not have any connective tissue. You can literally just, it's just like watching TV. We flick from this scene to this scene and we haven't had to have a whole stack of exposition in between those two moments. Um, but my fundamental mechanic is how far I lean in or I lean out of a conversation that's going on at the table. So if time is short or if I need to pressure time, then I will, I will become more engaged in the players' interactions. So I will actually push them much harder. So, you know, I'll say, what are you doing now? You know, I mean, there are techniques yeah. just like, a matter of fact, Nicholas was talking about it earlier, right? So they're just like meeting management techniques. Okay. It's, good, good you know, if you want, yeah, if you want it to move faster, you've got to provide direction. If you're content with it, because actually we've provided enough speed and we can now, you know, take the foot off the pedal a bit, then if you lean away from that conversation, so if the GM sort of lets the players talk to each other, then they will take much longer, right? It yeah. will inevitably take much longer the less you lean in. Um, and I think the trick is to do both. I think the trick in good convention GMing is to do a bit of both because you want the players to have fun and have a chat and get to know each other because they're building a relationship through these three hours just as much as they're playing a game. 
but then you've got to be ready to put, you know, your foot right to the pedal. Um, so the module I'm running uh, next week is very much foot to the pedal, right? The, the, what makes that module work is speed, right? Because the players, you don't want the players to think too hard about it. You want them to run because actually in the running, it's a little bit like an alien game. Uh, in the running is the excitement and, in, and they make lots of mistakes because they run and those mistakes are what actually drive the fun, mm-hmm. right? So, so there's a bit of both, right? So you're leaning in and out on that basis. There you go. That's my answer. Cool. Cool. Right. And talking of time, we are running out of time ourselves. <laughs> so I'd like to give each of you the opportunity. Is there something, some burning issue that you wanted to get off your chest about running convention games that you haven't done so? I'll go to each of you in turn. Niklas, let's start with you. Is there a question you have unanswered from this discussion? No, I've learned everything there is to learn. Excellent. That's what I like to hear. That is the service that we provide. <laughs> Dave, is there one thing you have been dying to say and haven't had the opportunity to say? I don't think so. I think just the key point is have fun um, and don't worry too much. It will be great. Brilliant. And, um, and Thomas, anything else that you need to say? Exactly the same as Dave. Mm-hmm. Word for yeah. word. It is the best advice. Just give it a go and everybody's going to have some sort of fun. And the more we practice, the better we get at it, I guess, as well. There is that as well. So um, let me say to both of you, well, to all three of you, including Dave, but I don't like thanking Dave all that often because he just gets a big head. Uh, But uh, Nicholas and Thomas, thank you very much for joining us for this segment. It's been really really great having you on board. And of course, I've got to say this every time because... I work for a volunteer organisation. Thank you for your patronage, for your continuing support of the podcast as a whole. <laughs> you can never say thank My you. Pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that was brilliant. It was great to, to have both Nicholas and Thomas join us, a truly global conversation. And, uh, yeah, we, 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 we kind of banked on 20 minutes and we got 45 or something. So, yeah. um, you know, brilliant. It was great. A, a delight to have them both on and some brilliant brilliant thoughts and comments and ideas coming out of out of that conversation we should we should have them on more often because they were great yeah and that's true for a lot of our patrons yeah if not all of them i mean they're you know our patrons are such great guys i love the chats we have on discord and stuff like that so uh so um uh yeah wonderful people all our patrons um moving on though what are we talking about next potemkin Ah. Potemkin, you, you bastard! You Dave. were, you were so, you were so. I don't know what it was about my um, Yamato piece. Uh, that you know, you're hoist you, by your own. You made me make Matthew. a battleship, and it's hard. Sure. Well, let's 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 hear about how hard it was then. I don't think Free League should have included ship design rules in the Alien core book. We didn't really need them. And I don't think they create ships that are useful mechanisms for play in the alien universe. Now, admittedly, I'm basing this on my frustration with trying to build a UPP battleship with the tools provided and on Dave's attempts to do the same for the Three World Empire in the last show. It could be reasonably argued that neither are the sort of ships we should be building for an alien adventure. 
and neither are they the sort of ships that players maybe would want to build. But even though I am using these tools to do a job they were not designed for, I will argue that my frustrations point to a flaw in the philosophy of ship design in Alien that, by putting the rules in the core book, is now stuck in our, the fans' mindsets and will be difficult to change. But first of all, let me tell you about my response to the challenge. I had been warned by Dave's failure to make HMS Yamato anything but an aircraft carrier. The rules as they stand push you towards that solution because there is precious little else to fill your larger spaceships with. So, for a while, I thought about not making Potemkin a battleship at all. I flirted with the idea of making it like one of those little vessels that haunted British seas in the 80s, passing themselves off as fishing boats while actually packed with all the latest Russian surveillance gear. When I say the 80s, it's only because we heard a lot about them at the time. We hear less now. But perhaps we should assume that they haunt our waters still. But it's the Potemkin, the ship which started the Russian Revolution of 1905. And the film of which started a revolution in film production called editing. It deserves to be better than a spy ship dressed up as a fishing boat. So I turned to the core book with a determination to make a battleship, not another aircraft carrier. And the first problem I discovered is, how big should it be? Of course, all this is abstracted, but the book lists four classes, C, G, M and R, and suggests that M-class vessels are what PCs should aspire to. So, if an M-class vessel is an Nostromo and a G-class vessel is Serenity, um, I, mean, I mean the Betty, what class, in size terms, would a warship be? They do give us a warship, the frigate Conestoga. It's about the size of an R-class, but has many fewer modules. An R-class can have 21 of various sizes. The Conestoga has 9. Oh, hold on. It has 20 EEVs, so it has, uh, 28? Hmm. An R-class has capacity for 6 weapon systems. The Conestoga has 8. So it doesn't follow the rules as written. OK, author prerogative. That's OK, he fumes. And he notes that in the listing on page 180, each vessel has a class listed except the Conestoga, which has a class of Conestoga. The Potemkin is a battleship, though, not a frigate. So it has to be bigger than this vessel. Should I invent a class? My notes say S, T, or V, V. In my headcanon, the Potemkin is a V-class, or Volga-class ship. Mmm, yes. But still, what size should it be? I try instead to build it from the inside out. What are the components I want? I will build it and size it around those. 
Redundancy is a theme I want to include on this UPP ship. Two of everything, even two AIs. I have a lovely idea about ship AI conflicts, mirroring counter-revolutionary vitriol in communist politics. I even think of calling them Lenin and Trotsky for a while before deciding that that is uh, somewhat too heavy-handed. And I'm looking through the list of modules with a sinking heart, realising there are simply not enough components of a suitable size to even double up in a warship when my eyes alight on the hangar. A size 5 hangar can accommodate a Class M ship. And suddenly my vision is transformed. Potemkin will be a ship of two parts. The hangar does not contain a Class M, but rather is a complex set of systems that allows the Class M vessel to be connected with the um, the other part. Class R? To make an even bigger vessel. Yes, yes. And the Class M vessel, of course, has the planetfall capacity upgrade. Don't get me started on upgrades. So it's a like a big landing craft, while the other section becomes an orbital bombardment platform. Oh yes, this is starting to be a thing. So, I start with what I am now calling the atmospheric interface component. Two sets of size 3 scrubbers. Redundancy, you see. Then, one size 4 cargo hold. This ship has to feed its orbital mother and a size 4 vehicle bay packing 10 APCs for the marines. It has marines now. Plus a size 3 bay for a tractor and two size 2 bays for gyro cars. Who else thinks about Edward Olmos's car in Blade Runner when they read that word? Just me? So, now we have marines, we'll need a size 4 cryo unit and a size 4 galley 2 for when they wake up. I'm not duplicating those at all. They have their own redundancy. But there are four Class D lifeboats, three med labs, and two docking umbilicals. An M-Class is not really a weapons platform, and I consider the added hard points upgrade, but in the end, decide against it. So just one heavy and two medium railgun turrets. Oh, and even though the glorious UPP does not have decadent things like corporate suites, it does have a diplomatic suite, which is where you'll usually find the Commissar. One more thing to note, this component has no AI or displacement drives. These are both on the Cosmo component, as the weapons platform is called, and of course so are their redundant systems. Most of the core components are duplicated on the Cosmo component. Two bridges, two sensor arrays, two comms arrays, two reactors and two drives. That will fill up a lot of space. Plus two more sets of scrubbers, size 4, and two Class D lifeboats. Another smaller galley and cryo deck, another couple of med labs, maybe just one science lab. I'm not sure I'm using up all the modules this way, but I've stopped counting. Instead, I'm giving it all the weapons on the Conestoga, but two of each. 
because I can, because this is a class V, and there are no rules for a class V, yet, and because now I'm having fun. But that brings us to the nub of my argument. Free League have given us a simple, fun system, not massively different from that found in Coriolis. No, it doesn't really work for building battleships, but that could be solved in a later supplement, if that's what the audience wants. But I argue that ships in Alien shouldn't be fun. It can be fun in other space games to spend some big haul you got on an upgrade for your ship. Just like you might upgrade your armour or your gun or some other tool. But the ships in the alien universe are not tools. They are settings. They are not meant to be fun. And definitely not meant to be upgraded. They should be imposed on players. PCs should feel weighed down by their responsibility to their ships, not liberated by them. They should find them confusing and get lost in them, not know it with a designer's eye. If they had not included ship design in the core book, this philosophy would be inherent in the system, even if later on some supplement gave players the opportunity to design or ugh, upgrade their vessel. But once you've handed over the keys to the car, you can't ever take it back. Well, that was really interesting, Matt. And clearly your, um, uh, what's the right word? Your uh, reluctance is the wrong word. Your impatience, I don't know what it is, um, comes comes through very clearly. Frustration. Is the frustration. Word that that's a good word. That's a good word. Your frustration. Um, but then you sound frustrated most of the time to me anyway. So it doesn't. This, this yeah, goes, you frustrate this, me quite this often. Goes, this so goes of course I will sound frustrated <laughs> to you. <laughs> oh, damn. My, my joke backfired there, didn't it? <laughs> bastard I hate it when you do that (laughs) Um, so yeah yes I get your point Um, uh, I found I found the same with the um, the spaceship design rules in Alien that yeah they just yeah yeah. okay I mean let's be honest here they're frustrating us doing a thing they never imagined we would do I don't think they thought that people are immediately going to start building battle size battleship sized vehicles and the rules um, are obviously not designed for that well i don't know because you know you you even in the rule book you get conestoga class Solarcos, which are yeah you know, which i don't think you know? actually necessarily follows the rules i haven't gone through it i mean yeah no that's a fair point um, um but still the, the in the game in the canon of the game and the fans of the game would probably want to see the Solarco recreated exactly, and but I think that's the thing. My point is, it's it's fine for them to give you the Solarco or the Nostromo or whatever as a ship as a whole. I what I what I think, and and I'll admit this is fun to do in many games. I don't think they should have given us the tools to make our own Solarco or to say. Right, well, the Solarco, we, kn- we know about that from the Alien film. I'm going to make a better battleship because I, I'm going to use these rules yeah. to get maximum efficiency out of 
whatever the point structure is that one spends. Okay, but do you I mean, do you do you think that's the case though? Because the rules are as they are, and they're difficult to use to make that kind of ship. So my my challenge is if the rules were were different and it was much easier and it made more sense in designing a battleship with them, would that have uh, assuaged okay. some of your concern? So let's look into the future for a moment. At some point, uh, the alien universe may be so wildly um, marvellous that they do something like, in Traveller, in the early years of Traveller, they produced a, a, a supplement called something like High Command or something. I can't remember yeah. exactly what it was called. But it was it was the, taking the basic ship rules that they had in the in the little black book and expanding them so you could. It was the it was the navy, the yeah. It was the navy supplement, wasn't it? I've got it here. Somewhere. Yeah, it was. Yeah. So <clears> we <throat> may get to that point. You know, let's just imagine a wonderful future where Fox Disney, you know, keep the license firmly in um, Free League's hands, and uh, the game becomes wildly popular, and the audience demand that there's a navy supplement. Then yes, we can go back to these rules. And we can add a whole bunch of components. One of the biggest problems I have with this thing is that weapons are effectively hard points. Yeah. But whatever weapon you have, there's no module cost. Uh, I'm pretty convinced. I can't remember. I have to look back at Coriolis. But off the top of my head, I vaguely remember that if you have a missile weapon, then you need a place to store the missiles in Coriolis. But apparently you don't need that here in Alien. So, yeah, although although the um, the fact that you've got so many leftover modules, I, I when I made the um, HMS Yamato, I, I turned some of the modules into exactly, and ammo, that's kind of what I did stores. for the weapon yeah. platform bit here. Is you know, but you know, in a way, um, we're we're not following the rules or or not taking advantage of the rules because there is yeah. that gap. That could all be solved in some future navy supplement. You know, it can all be solved. My argument is actually much more basic, in that. The fun of this game should not be about designing ships. And so try and create a system of ship design that is simple to use and therefore fun, which, okay, they've done. I, I kind of had fun, despite my frustration with mm -hmm. designing Potemkin, uh, particularly when I did the first bit where I could pretty much, you know, fill every module slot there with something that would be useful to that ship. Yeah. So that, you know, I, I definitely was, you know, I got my fun vibe on there. I, I speak of frustration, but I had fun while I was doing it. Um, but we don't need to have that fun here. The ship should be given to us as a setting, not as a tool. Yeah. We don't need the ship to be efficient. I would argue, in fact, actually, that what we see in the Alien movies is inefficient ships. <laughs> Huge, mm. great spaces full of nooks and crannies for aliens to hide, but not actually necessarily adding anything to the the ship as a tool in the in the player's hands yeah. it is a setting i think i say not at all and i think that's so a really good point I, yeah i think having i think in the first edition we should have just had here are some ships you can set your stuff in let's have some floor plans let's let's yeah. explain a bit about the stats but let's not worry about shipbuilding until a later supplement that's what i would have done if I'd been to I think, the gang. It I think that's a good call, actually. I think having the ships, yeah, just kind of like in a philosophical sense, having the ships as the setting rather than a tool of the setting is is a, probably a much better way of looking at it. And yeah, you know, and you exactly. see on on all the on all the forums, uh, you know, every week you've got people asking for you know the the, the floor plans of Salako and the floor plans of Nostromo and all those kind of things. Um, so that's what people want to 
feel like they're walking around the ship and they want to use those floor plans for their scenarios and their games rather yeah, than what, the actual I, how fast the ship is or how many modules it's got. I'll tell you what it made me. In the early days of me thinking about uh, Potemkin, I did have the idea about, oh, maybe I should create a sort of modular ship where I just create floor plans, all of these modules, and we, we slap them out mm. vaguely randomly. I guess a bit like you do... Tell me about Nemesis. How do you design the ship in Nemesis? Do you, do you get a bunch of tiles and put them together and that's your ship? Or is yeah. it just a standard board every time? No, no. So there's a, there's a standard layout, but the actual modules of the ship are random each time. So you, you have, you've got, um, uh, I think there's about 10 modules which you'll have in every game, um, but then they'll be randomly placed. And then you'll have, there's about another 10 modules and I think six of those are used in each game and they're randomly placed. So you get the same stuff, but each game the ship is actual actually different because like you say, mod- in the modular sense, it's been put together in a different way. So you see, I think that, that might have been a more fun expansion. <coughs> um, you know, if we'd had the core book, we'd had some adventures and then there'd been a make your own ship stroke haunted house type. Um, here's a bunch of mod- uh, floor tiles that you stick together yeah. for a random alien adventure. I mean, you know, maybe they didn't want to do that because Nemesis has already done something like it. But in a way, that is a more useful, fun tool for the philosophy of the alien RPG than you know the tool set that we've got basically yeah. ripped out of Coriolis. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So yeah, but I had fun doing it, and I tell you, they, I promised you an idea for another alien scenario. Um, oh yeah. And half halfway through this, I, I I kind of thought, oh maybe I should change. Um, what I'm going to do for this and actually do this other thing instead. But by that time, I'd already designed the the, um, the atmospheric interface component of Potemkin, so I didn't want to lose that, so I didn't do that. But it made me think, actually, that what we could do is write a scenario that was basically... Have you ever seen the film K-19 Widowmaker? No, I haven't. So this, that's a film, I think, based on a true story. Do you remember uh, a in the north, uh, somewhere outside Archangel, the Russians lost a submarine and uh, it, for some reason it couldn't service and there were a bunch of sailors trapped on board? I do remember that, yeah. And there was a, like, either a, based on a true story or something inspired by that. There was a movie called K-19 Widowmaker, which was about a bunch of Russians trapped on board a submarine right. and the, the the nuclear reactors going off pot and they have to go in there and fix it. And it's all horrible because, of course, they haven't got enough um, radioactive suits and things like that. I thought you could have a, a non-alien game on that principle, something going wrong on a on a ship, a UPP ship, obviously, because <laughs> everything works in the United Americas. Uh, but yeah, you could do a, a, a scenario based on that. And I might think about that some more. I'd have to watch the film again, really, to, to see how much I could rip it off. But yeah. it felt to me that there was a stress-inducing situation there. Yes, it doesn't involve sure. Xenos at all that would be a fun game to play yeah. in the alien system. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So, well, well, well done, Matt. Anyway, <clears throat> on uh, on drawing all that out from a simple, why don't you go and design a spaceship? Don't ever make me do a battleship again, and I <laughs> promise I won't make you do a battleship again. Okay. Fair um, what are we going? What is our well? Maybe let's not talk about challenges. 
one of the things that we've talked about for a future episode, and I don't know whether it's going to be the next episode, perhaps you can tell me more, is getting the guys behind the upcoming reissue of Ice Cold Inferno. Um, yes, yeah, so um, program. How's, yes. how's, how's that going? So I'm talking to Adam about uh, Adam Palmquist, um, who is uh, doing the translation with uh, Moa. Frithofferson. Frithofferson. Um I think that's correct pronunciation of the surname. Probably not. So apologies, Moa, if uh, if you're listening and that's wrong. I'll get it right next time, promise. Um, yeah, so we're just talking about getting the, the timing right. So they're looking to get this done um, and out there by Christmas. So um, either the next episode or the episode after, we will um, get them on and have a chat through uh, yeah, some of their inspiration behind doing that. Um, what else there might be out there that could be translated? Um, and yeah, just get a bit of an insight into into what they're doing. I'm not sure whether it will Excellent. be for next time or the episode or after the time that. After. It's kind of up to them for when they most want the you know us to have to this get conversation. The out for their, exactly. For their yeah. So um, yeah. But yeah. So um, watch this space. Um, listeners watch this space listeners listen to this space ex- viewers um <laughs> <laughs> would you explain to listeners who aren't on facebook there's been a bit of discussion about this ice cold inferno was a scenario that um uh that adam wrote some years ago for the original version of coriolis yeah the pre pre uh, pre free league version of coriolis and it's going to be reissued on the free league workshop um which is great excitement as a, as a translation in english yeah Yes, yeah, because <clears throat> yeah, they do uh, exist. And, course, they only, and they the only... translation into the new system that Coriolis yeah, is. They only exist in Swedish for the old system at the moment. Yeah, yeah, and um, um, yeah. So with this, of course, that. that's you can something your hands that, in it. Yeah. that fans have been asking for for some time. Not specifically that scenario, but the, all those scenarios that were written for that old but, system. Yeah, so we will definitely have that. If not on the next episode, then the episode after. Yeah. Is there anything um, else we're going to promise for the next episode or shall we just think about it nearer the time? Um, I, I think we should think about it near the time. We've been going on for a long time today. Um, I don't have any immediate bits of homework for you. Um, so unless you've got any immediately to mind for me, I think we could probably do that out of committee and surprise our listeners next time round. I'm sure we can. Although uh, I've already not let you talk about Tales of the Old West this week, so I imagine yeah, but, there will be something about Tales of the Old West yeah, in the that, next episode. But that's only a, a few minutes. That's not that doesn't really count as homework, I don't think. Okay. Right. But cool. otherwise, it'll be a surprise package, listener. <laughs> right now, cool. it's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from him, and may the icons. And- we didn't decide at the start again, did we? But I'm doing it this no, time. No, we didn't. We never did. <laughs> and may the icons bless your adventures. You have been listening to The Effect Podcast, presented by Fiction Suit and the RPG Gods. Music stars on a black sea, used with permission of Free League Publishing.